This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Here's Russell Banks on Burning Boy. Paul Auster's all-in obsessive engagement with the 19th century bad boy of American literature, Stephen Crane, is brilliant and beautiful. Auster's mastery of the historical context, his writerly, troubled, imaginative insights into Crane's character, and the analysis of the works, all superb. And the prose is beautiful, lucid and clear, and yet lyrical and personal. This is more than a novel more than a biography, more than a book of critical analysis. This is a significant work of literature and the most profound homage of one writer to another that I've ever read. Paul Auster is the best-selling author of 4321, Sunset Park, Invisible, The Book of Illusions, and the New York Trilogy, among many other works. All of them have been translated into more than 40 languages. He's the winner of numerous awards, and he's my guest on this episode of The Literary Life, recorded for the 2021 edition of the Miami Book Fair. And it begins with Paul reading from his brilliant new book. All right, here's how the book begins. Born on the Day of the Dead, and dead five months before his 29th birthday, Stephen Crane lived five months and five days into the 20th century, undone by tuberculosis before he had a chance to drive an automobile or see an airplane, to watch a film projected on a large screen, or listen to a radio, a figure from the horse and buggy world who missed out on the future that was awaiting his peers not just the construction of those miraculous machines and inventions, but the horrors of the age as well, including the destruction of tens of millions of lives in two world wars. His contemporaries were Henri Matisse, 22 months older than he was, Vladimir Lenin, 17 months older, Marcel Proust, four months older, and such American writers as W.E.B. Du Bois, Theodore Dreiser, Willa Cather, Gertrude Stein, Sherwood Anderson, and Robert Frost, all of whom carried on well into the new century. But Crane's work, which shunned the traditions of nearly everything that had come before him, was so radical for its time that he can be regarded now as the first American modernist, the man most responsible for changing the way we see the world through the lens of the written word. And then skipping ahead, um, after one disaffected and aborted year as a college student, a single semester at Lafayette, 
followed by another semester at Syracuse, where he played on the baseball team and registered for just one course. Crane headed back south to the twin destinations of Asbury Park and New York City, determined to make his way as a professional writer. He was not yet 20 years old. On September 28th, just blocks away from where Crane would soon be living in Manhattan, the unread and all but forgotten Herman Melville died. On November 10th, thousands of miles to the east in Marseille, France, Arthur Rambeau died at the age of 37. 27 days after that, Crane's 64-year-old mother died of cancer. The newly orphaned budding writer had only eight and a half more years to live himself. But in that short time, he produced one masterpiece of a novel, The Red Badge of Courage, two boldly imagined and exquisite novellas, Maggie, A Girl of the Streets, and The Monster, close to three dozen stories of unimpeachable brilliance, among them The Open Boat and The Blue Hotel, two collections of some of the strangest, most savage poems of the 19th century, The Black Riders and War is Kind, and more than 200 pieces of journalism, many of them so good that they stand on equal footing with his literary work. A burning boy of rare precociousness who was blocked from entering the fullness of adulthood. He is America's answer to Keats and Shelley, to Schubert and Mozart. And if he continues to live on as they do, it is because his work has never grow, grown old. 120 years after his death, Stephen Crane continues to burn. And then again, skipping ahead, I just want to uh, introduce this. I, I mentioned um, earlier here, with the part I'm skipping over, that Crane is not really read so much today. And, and then I say, if it had been otherwise, I never would have thought of writing this book. I come to it not as a specialist or a scholar, but, but as an old writer in awe of a young writer's genius having spent the past two years poring over every one of Crane's works, having read through every one of his published letters, having snatched up every piece of biographical information I could put my hands on, I find myself just as fascinated by Crane's frantic, contradictory life as by the work he left us. It was a weird and singular life, full of impulsive risks and often pulverizing lack of money and a pig-headed, intractable devotion to his calling as a writer, which flung him from one unlikely and perilous situation to the next, a controversial article written at 20 that disrupted the course of the 1892 presidential campaign, a public battle with the New York Police Department that effectively exiled him from the city in 1896, a shipwreck off the coast of Florida that led to his near drowning in 1897, a common law marriage to the proprietress of Jacksonville's most elegant body house, the Hotel de Dream, work as a correspondent during the Spanish-American War in Cuba, where he repeatedly stood in the line of enemy fire, and then his final years in England, where Joseph Conrad was his closest friend, and Henry James wept over his early death. And this writer, who is best known as a chronicler of war, embraced many other subjects as well, handling them all with immense skill and originality, from stories about young children and struggling bohemian artists 
to firsthand accounts of New York opium dens, conditions in a Pennsylvania coal mine, coal mine, and a devastating drought in Nebraska. And much like Edgar Allan Poe, often mistakenly identified as nothing more than our dark browed purveyor of horror and mystery, when in fact, he was a master humorist as well. The somber, pessimistic crane could be hilariously funny when he chose to be. And underneath the mountain of his prose, or perhaps on top of it, there are his poems, which few people in or out of the academy have ever known quite what to do with. Poems so far from the traditional norms of 19th century verse making, including the norm-breaking deviations of Whitman and Dickinson, that they scarcely seem to count as poetry at all, and yet they stay in the mind more persistently than most other American poems I can think of. As for example, this one, which has continued to haunt me ever since I first read it more than five decades ago. And here's the little poem. In the desert, I saw a creature, naked, bestial, who, squatting upon the ground, held his heart in his hands and ate of it. I said, is it good, friend? It is bitter, bitter, he answered, but I like it because it is bitter and because it is my heart. Mm. Yeah, that one poem, it's, it's, it's unforgettable. It uh, really is. You read it once and you can't get it out of your head. Uh, and, you know, he was just 22 years old when he wrote it. And, you know, the depth of the psychological wisdom of this, I mean, I, I, I think there are probably 50 ways to interpret it. Sure. But one of them seems to be how, how um, persistently we cling to our own misery, uh, <laughs> how we uh, actually fall in love with our own ha unhappiness. And I'm, and I'm wondering, when you first got this notion of wanting to write about Stephen Crane, did you think you would end up with an 800-page book? About Absolutely not. I never, I never imagined myself doing this, um, and that, and that's, it's, it's strange. I, you see, it started when I finished um, writing four three two one, which was in, in 2016. The book came out in 17, early 17, but it was the spring of 16, early spring, and I was exhausted. I, I had, I had just spent three and a half solid years, seven days a week for the most part, six at the least, um, writing this immense novel. And uh, I had no energy left. And I knew that I would have to take a break. I, I needed time off. And uh, for the first time, really, in, in decades, I said, I'm not going to write anything for a while. I'm just going to go on on a kind of holiday. And um, I spent that time... Uh, reading books, uh, particularly books that I had always meant to read and had never gotten around to, um, watching films that I had always wanted to see and hadn't. Um, so just kind of, um, what, what's the term? People say recharging your batteries. Is that, is that, that's the conventional cliche. Sure. About it. But I, I really felt I needed to do that. Um, um, uh, on my shelf, I had one book of Stephen Crane's. It was the Viking Portable Edition that I think right. I had bought in college. And um, I, too, like you, read The Red Badge of Courage in the 10th grade. Um, but 
I loved it. And I remember I had a wonderful English teacher in my public high school in New Jersey, same state where Crane grew up. Um, uh, and she not only gave us that, but I remember we read The Open Boat as well, and we read some of the poetry. And that's when I first read that, that poem. Uh, and we also watched the John Huston version of the, of the book, uh, The Red Badge of Courage, mm. 1951 movie which is so-so. I mean, it's not terrible. It's not great. Um, but the book but the book was really um, a big experience. And I, I remember how much everyone liked it in the class, not just the boys, but the girls too. It's a book about a teenager after all. And we were all teenagers. And um, uh, But for some reason after that, I really didn't read Crane. I just, I knew he was there. I felt tremendous admiration for him. But I was involved with other things and years and years and years went by and therefore I saw this book on the shelf and I said I'm going to take another look at Stephen Crane um, and the first thing I, I opened to was a novella entitled The Monster and I had never read it nor I had ever heard of it I mean I was just like you Mitch I, I really didn't know much about Stephen Crane at that point at all Vaguely, I knew he had worked as a journalist as well as written uh, novels and poems and that he had died young. And that, that was about it. So I read this 60-page novella. I was flattened by it. I, it. It's so powerful. It is so extraordinary and so unexpected since it is uh, essentially a story about race in America at that time. And that time when he wrote it, 1897, was exactly the beginning of the institutionalization of Jim Crow. And, uh, you know, because that had been codified by the Supreme Court decision the previous year, Plessy v. Ferguson, everyone knows about this now, you know, establishing the so-called separate but equal laws. Um, and, um, and, and, and Crane... You know, unlike, uh, you know, many people of his moment had had a lot of sympathy for black people. Um, his parents were very religious. His his father was a Methodist minister, in fact, and his mother was very devout and a um, a, a temperance advocate. Uh, um, but after the Civil War, they had they they then moved to Port Jervis, where Crane spent part of his childhood, which is a small town, small city of about 9,000 people, right at the border, at the juncture of New York, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. And in this town, they set up two schools for black people, um, one for women and children, the other for men. And uh, so Crane grew up with this. And um, I think it made him somehow uh, innately less prejudiced than, than, than most white people from his Anglo-Saxon backgrounds were, especially at that time. Uh, it's it's an it's a overpowering story, and I, I won't go into the details now. I urge everyone to read it. Just to answer the original question, um, did I think I was going to write such a long book? No. And I, <laughs> after reading everything of Crane, I, I read his collected works eventually, and I read everything he ever published, which amounts to over three thousand one hundred pages, if you can believe it. 3,000 pages. Wow. Um, and most of it is really good, and some of it is sublime. Um, 
um, I thought I need to write a little book about Stephen Crane just to show my appreciation and, you know, try to inspire people to pay attention to him. I figured it would be 150 to 200 pages, a little book. And, um, well, you see the result. Once I got started, I realized there was so much to talk about. And there were so many interesting works that people don't discuss that I felt, here's my chance. So the book is half biography and half reading of his work. And in that biography part comes what you would call the history. And, um, and I realized, too, that I, it was necessary to explain the circumstances of the time so that his work would make you know, perfect sense uh, and you'd understand where, it, where it's coming from. Well, I myself was not an expert on the 1890s, I can tell you. So I did a lot of reading and a lot of you know, researching about what was going on. The astonishing thing about it was that those days, the so-called Gilded Age, right, very similar to what we're living through now, uh, the same sort of nativism, the same sort of racial animus in the society, the same appalling gap between the rich and the poor. Uh, I would say today we're, we're at, at pretty much the same spot we were in the 1890s in that wealth gap. Um, the... Uh, this it was the beginning of the full-throated labor movement. Uh, some of the major strikes in American history took place in the late 19th century. Huge strikes, and they were violent. We uh, are a country that never accepted socialism, uh, but uh, we, we repressed strikes more violently than any other country ever did, um, in Europe, in any case, um, where the unions made greater headway than ours ever did. Um, and now unions have been destroyed. Uh, workers are treated like garbage in this country now. Um, replaceable pieces of, of human flesh that, that you discard when they get old and can't function and get a new, younger version of the same thing and then discard that one. Um, it's appalling. And um, so... Uh, and also, you have to understand, I started writing the book in, in um, 2017. You know, I did you know, a, couple of, a year and a half of intense reading, which went on. But once all my book touring of, for 4321 was over and the book was out, that's when I started writing. Well, that was 2017. That's the year Trump took over as president. And so the book was written during the Trump years. Um, and I finished the text in early 2020, just before the pandemic broke, just before lockdown. It was February and March, you know, uh, our world changed completely. So it's from that period. And I could not help, um, you know, making comparisons in my mind throughout about how similar the two eras were and, and different as well, but, but still, a lot of deep similarities. Um, well, and, and I think that's the relevance that you bring to Crane as well today. I mean, that there is that, um, that parallel. And because Crane wrote about these things. I mean, you know, Maggie, you know, the, the Maggie girl of the streets, you know, everything, you know, what you mentioned earlier about Monster. I mean, he wrote about issues that are still very much alive today. Yeah, and I mean to say, I had to, I had to really dig into 
learning about the Spanish-American War. It's not something right. people talk about anymore, but it actually was the beginning of modern America as we know it. It was, you know, fought in 1898, but that was the beginning of the so-called American century. That's when America started strutting its muscles out on the world stage. Crane wasn't a typical journalist, right? I mean, he wasn't, he didn't go and cover a war. Explain how Crane operated, you know, as a writer and, and how he dealt with his journalism. Okay, well, it's very interesting to know that Crane was the youngest of 14 children and that his next oldest sibling was a full eight years older than he was. Uh, the, uh, out of the 14, nine survived into, you know, robust childhood and grew and managed to grow up. Uh, two of those siblings died when Crane was a young person. Uh, when he was, I think, 12 or 13, his beloved sister died, and she was only 28. She got meningitis and died. This was a lacerating uh, loss for him because she was more of a mother to him than his own mother was. And she was the one who would encourage him to read books and to write. Um, and so um, one of Crane's older brothers, Townley, who was, I think, a full 19 years older than he was, happened to be uh, a, a news person. And he uh, lived in Asbury Park and he worked for the New York Tribune and also had a uh, a press agency. Um, and so Crane, as a teenager, started working for his brother. And Asbury Park was a really thriving um, uh, a summer community. Uh, I think something like 600,000 people passed through there every summer. And explain, had- explain that it's not the Asbury Park that we all think of today, right? No, this was a standard <laughs> place of the boardwalk and middle class and upper middle class people with hotels everywhere, amusement parks. uh, 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 Every day there were lectures going on. You could take courses, um, all kinds of things. And Crane was running around on his bicycle as a teenager, you know, getting little scoops for for his brothers. uh, And there was a large uh, Methodist community there, right? It was founded by Methodists. Another thing I didn't know, because I used to go there, as a teenager, and we used to ride on the roller coaster and right. the boardwalk, and we thought it was just a, a fun place. <clears throat> a fun place had been uh, founded by very devout Methodists, and Asbury was actually the first Methodist bishop in the United States. Um, a fact I hadn't known until I started reading about all this. Um, so, so newspaper work was something that he, he was very familiar with very early. And, and some of his articles, they're about nothing at all. But I'm telling you, when he's 16, 17, 18 years old, they're very funny. They're, they're very, 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 very witty. Um, I, I won't take up time to read. I could read a passage, you know, from... from well, that'd be great if you could. Um, here, here is Crane, um, I think at, at 18. Um, and this is one little thing. Throngs at Asbury Park, that's the title of the piece. This is just one sentence. I I found it hilarious. The city maidens and their gallant attendants have blossomed out in blazer jackets with caps to match, which make them look like huge potato bugs. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) That is great. And and, um, um, uh, and then... uh, Oh, there's a, there's another there's another there's a, 
I'll, I'll skip it, but it's 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 hilarious how he could uh, nail these middle class people and yeah, how he was really funny, you know funny he could be about them. He was quite good. It got him a little bit of trouble too, right? Well, this is a thing. A little later, um, when he was twenty and he had finished college, and um, he was down there in the eighteen ninety two, so he was you know twenty, and. Um, he wrote an article that um, was about a nativist workers group. They did a parade and he wrote about it in a very uh, cutting, sarcastic way, not really making fun of them so much as the people watching them march, the, uh, the people in their tennis clothes and the women with their gowns on. And, um, and the presidential campaign was going on, the owner of the Tribune, Whitelaw Reed, was actually the candidate on the Republican ticket for vice president. Right. And, and suddenly this article was seen as an insult to this workers group. Right. And then suddenly the Republicans were accused of being anti-labor. And it caused a huge furor. <laughs> and Crane was fired from the, from the New York Tribune after this article. And in fact, they never forgot and for the rest of his life, the New York Tribune attacked everything he wrote. Even in death, right? They wrote Even a really died, they wrote, they wrote a, a negative obituary. Exactly. But everything he wrote, they called him a fraud and a and a poser and and a and a shitty writer. I mean, they called the red badge of courage, I remember, a chromatic nightmare. And um, you know, it's one insult after another. So uh, but when he moved to New York. He got work because he needed work. He needed to make money. He was uh, always struggling. I mean, financially. Was, was the curse. I mean, he, he was impoverished for a long time in the beginning. And then when he did make some money, uh, it usually just slipped right through his fingers. He couldn't hold on to it. And so he was always in debt, always scrambling. And so in the beginning, you know, at 22, he's he starts writing uh what they call sketches for the New York press, which was a daily paper then. And um, these are not typical reports about anything. They're just whatever he wants to write about. Um, uh, he, it was in a period of tremendous economic hardship, the panic of 1893, which uh, set off a depression. As it was the biggest in American history. Uh, second biggest to, you know, the Great Depression of the 1930s. New York unemployment was something like one third. And there were homeless mm. men and men, you know, sleeping on street corners all over the city and soup kitchens and bread lines. And, and during a big blizzard came down and Crane ran out to just to watch uh, a group of uh, unemployed men waiting in line for the doors to open in a, in a shelter where for five cents they would get a bed and uh, a cup of coffee and a roll in the morning. And uh, he just stood there and for hours in the, in the freezing weather and watched and presumably, I guess, maybe took notes, went home after and wrote, wrote seven pages about this. Yeah, amazing. But he doesn't do anything that a reporter would do. He doesn't right. interview any of them. He doesn't go in to look at the place. He doesn't ask the people who work there, you know, how is it funded? How many beds are there? Are there? How many people come? It's and not a word about the panic either, the the depression. 
is just simply watching this, these men. It's called the men in the storm. Wow. Or, for example, after that, he went out with a friend of his, one of his roommates. He shared this big loft with three other people. They were all young artists. And um, it's called an experiment in misery. Houses and, um, uh, you know, trying to absorb this, the tramp life of, of New York City. When Crane actually wrote the piece, he eliminated the friend, which is already not journalism then. And he, he right. so uh, he is simply calls himself the youth, goes out into the city, you know, to, to see what's going on. And, um, so even though it's all accurate, because the friend who was with him later confirmed everything Crane wrote as true to their own it's not a piece of journalism as we would define it today. It's a sketch, and he was really good at writing these sketches. His war reporting is a bit different, um, and he did do some reporting. You know, in the coal mines, he really, he really did it. Uh, in the drought in Nebraska, he really covered the job and interviewed people for, for those. Well, he got a gig. Of, if, what was it? He got a gig to be able to travel. Well, that was his, his dream, his dream job. Yeah. Uh, uh, a news syndicate run by Irving Batchelor sent him to go out west and then down into Mexico. And he was gone for over four months and it, it changed his life. I mean, so many right. of his later stories were set in these places. And uh, there's some of the best work he ever did. Um, he wrote a great so, piece in Nebraska and Omaha where he met Willa Cather, for instance, right? That's it. And he wrote a great piece there as well. That's it. Yeah, yeah. The Nebraska's bitter struggle for life. That's what the right. newspaper right. was. And so he walks in. It's midnight. He finally gets out to Lincoln, Nebraska. And she was a <laughs> junior in college. She was two years younger than Crane. So she's 20. He's 22. Um, or maybe he's 23 by now. And she's 21. And um, he sees this young woman standing up, but she's fast asleep on her feet. You know, nice. sleeping the way a horse sleeps. And, and um, he, he's, he, he was astonished. He said, I've never seen anything like it. Well, she, she uh, hung around with him a bit. And, and he was... His the red badge of courage had been serialized in newspapers, but the book hadn't been published yet. He was in this in between phase, but she had uh, been the copy editor on the Lincoln, Nebraska newspapers version of of these extracts, and so she was very eager to talk to him. And she wrote a piece that is, um, I think, largely made up. But there are some interesting things in it. And she's, she's a wonderful writer. There's no question right. about it. But, you know, Crane was blonde. She calls him dark-haired. You know? That's I, right. I think she wanted him to be Edgar Allan Poe reincarnated. <laughs> and, and she pretends that, you know, Crane had a, a book of Poe sticking out of his pocket, which is it's just it's not true. And, um, but, right. but nevertheless, it's an interesting piece to read by her. Um, well... So in in these in the, in in these in these eight years nine years in the eighteen nineties, when Crane was was doing what he did, he had a number of relationships that were really interesting uh, with with women that meant women that that changed the course of what he was doing. 
right? Uh, and he would, and and he had also um, a remarkable, um, again, sense of empathy for you know he, he, you know, his sense of morality. You know, he was not offended by by prostitution or what was happening in the streets. You know, he he. In fact, one of the other major scandals in his life, which brought him in, in in conflict with Teddy Roosevelt, right, was the the where he stood up, you know, against the New York City police who was trying to harass a a a prostitute. Right. right? Well, it was if I remember false, it correctly. False arrest case. Um, um, Teddy Roosevelt uh, had been named uh, commissioner of New York police in, uh, I guess it was 1895, after the 1894 elections. They had, Crane had written about that election, the 1894, in one of his pieces. And um, it was a reform Republican uh, slate. They kicked out Tammany Hall, you know, for a couple of years. Um, and uh, Roosevelt was only 36 years old, and the, the new mayor, uh, appointed him uh, sort of chairman of the police board, which is in effect the same thing as the commissioner today. And um, Roosevelt loved Crane's writing, and, and he read avidly, and he was an admirer and also a friend. But Crane was hired by William Randolph Hearst. It's funny how all these names, he worked for Hearst and Pulitzer. <laughs> we know all these names still. It's not as if it's, it's not so far no. and uh, to write a series of articles about the Tenderloin, which was uh, sort of the naughty neighborhood of New York. And um, Crane was interviewing a couple of showgirls uh, late one night uh, in, a, in, a, in a, I don't know, bar, restaurant, resort, they called it back in the day. Right. Uh, and uh, they were about to leave. It was getting close to two in the morning when this prostitute named Dora Clark, who knew one of the girls, came over and said hi. And she sat down for a few minutes and then they all left. And Crane put one of the showgirls on a uh, cable car to get her home, leaving the two other women to talk uh, between themselves. And as he was walking back to join them, he saw a policeman, a plainclothes policeman, jump out of the shadows and arrest these two women for soliciting, which they hadn't done. There were, there were two men far across the street. This was on Broadway and 31st or 32nd Street. Um, and it was false. But the, the, the police had had it in for this Dora Clark for other reasons that I won't go into now. Um, so Crane stood up for her in the police court the next morning, and the charges were dropped. And she was so angry that she decided to sue the policeman, whose name was Becker, for um, false arrest. And it was then that the police turned against Crane because they knew he was going to be a witness. They ransacked his apartment when he was away. Uh, and then they fabricated a case against him as a witness. He wasn't on trial. He was simply a witness. Yeah, he... But they, they wanted to discredit his testimony and so they dug into his life and found these things. For example, the opium den piece. Right. Uh, he, had, he had saved an opium pipe and mounted it on his wall. 
he liked to mount things on the wall, you know, the souvenirs. He had things from his Mexico trip. Spurs would be on the wall, and then he had his pipe from the opium den. And they accused him of running an opium den and being a pimp. Um, and uh, the, the trial had dragged on so long, it was about three in the morning when he was called on to testify. They didn't adjourn then. They just ran right through the night. Um, and he was, he was discredited. And, and uh, the police didn't leave him alone. He was so harassed everywhere he went. And uh, I think maybe he felt he was really in danger. And, and that's why he had to leave New York. And so he signed up with Bachelor's Syndicate again, this time not to go out west, but to go to Cuba to cover right. the beginning of the revolution there. He had to go to Florida. He was in Jacksonville. Well, I particularly loved your discussion of Jacksonville and Key West and what he was doing there. Yeah. Was well, really he was, interesting. He was, yeah. And the, and the woman he, he fell in love with and eventually lived with, you know, Cora. his life, Cora was in Jacksonville. And, and she was the one who ran this nightclub sort of brothel, sort of not. But she was a very well-read, educated person. She was already a big fan of Crane's work and um, an astounding figure in her own right. Yeah, and, she's so interesting in her own right, I think. Yeah. Really uh, interesting. Yeah, a completely liberated late 19th century woman um, who, who had had lots of affairs when she was younger. And the problem with her and Crane was that she was married. She, uh, she had been divorced once and then married again and was separated from the second husband who refused to give her a divorce. Right. And therefore, um, they felt that they couldn't live together in the United States because it would shock Crane's Methodist family. And, uh, and that's what drove them to Europe, to England. Yes, and that's when they moved to England. And England, is, it's just so fascinating how, and then the, the friendship that he developed with Joseph Conrad, they were... Yeah, no, Conrad was like a brother to him, right? Absolutely, and I think it was Crane's closest friendship, or certainly literary friendship, and Conrad... Well, how about how about how Henry James reacted to his sickness and his death? He was in I a mean, panic. He loved, he I know. loved Crane. He loved, he thought Crane was the future of American writing. Yeah. And, you know, James was in his mid-50s then, Crane is, you know, in his mid to late 20s and uh, uh he was like crane's uncle i mean he, he really he took a, a tremendous interest in him and what he was doing and um and he was devastated by by the death but well crane, and then yeah. you know you talk about conrad and and god the relationship that they had was truly like brothers i mean and it's almost heartbreaking to read about you know, Conrad's reflections toward the end of Crane's life and when Crane actually died. And Crane, talk a little bit about how Crane had this really sense that he wasn't going to live a long time, right? He did. He did. And, you know, he was a, a very good athlete. Uh, you know, I should mention this. He didn't just play baseball, but he was a terrific rider. He loved horses. And, and he... Uh, I mean, I think Conrad wrote, he said, you know, Crane never looked so magnificent as when sitting on a horse. Um, and he, he, loved, he loved riding. He loved hiking. Uh, Crane thought nothing about sleeping on the hard, cold right. ground. He didn't care about luxury or comfort at all. He liked to rough it. And it was, uh, 
He played tennis. He played handball. You know, someone described his playing handball with him, and he said he was like a ferocious machine mm. was, and so strong. But his lungs were weak, and it's possible. Who knows? But it's possible he had a, a mild case of tuberculosis when he was a boy, um, and he had traces of the, of the infection in him all along. Living in the slums of New York couldn't have helped. And then finally, what ultimately broke his health completely was the time he spent in Cuba uh, because he caught um, malaria there or some kind of tropical fever, which never left him. And combined with the weak lungs, um, it, it ultimately killed him after you know less than two years after he got back. But he sensed in his own body Early on, at, at 20, he was already saying to people, I, I'm not going to have a long life. Right. My time is limited on this earth. And I think that's why he took the risks he did. And he was so bold. Um, he loved to gamble. Poker was one of his favorite things. Right, right. Off topic a little bit, but I've been reading these uh, books of American history lately. Uh you know, you told me about that, and yes. I ordered one by yeah, Alan, Alan Taylor. Alan um, Taylor. I mean, he's won two Pulitzer Prizes. It's not as though he's not recognized right. as right. a good historian. But there are three. There's one that is uh, about the colonial period. That's what I ordered, the one called The yeah, Colonies. Really fascinating. And then, and then there's the one about, it's called American Revolutions, uh, uh, plural. Um, and um, it carries on from around, uh, I don't know, 1750 into the early 19th century. And now I'm finishing up the third one, which is called American Republics, and that, that goes up to 1850. Cool. I have had a new education about American history, and it is shocking, uh, and it's really depressing, I have to say. Yeah. And just the, the fervor of hatred that was uh, animating this country from the very beginning and the, and the mob violence uh, that was prevalent all through the 19th century. People didn't like some. They just burned down his house, and tar and feather him, and kill him, and lynch him. And uh, it was, you know, really brutal. And this was a, a brutal, violent country right from the start. And um, so, I mean, that leads, that leads straight through Crane to what I think ultimately is such a triumph of what you did in this book is that you you took someone who has not read so much and who has not really thought of so much, and by doing this really interesting mix of deep you know insight into his work, but as well talking about his life, which in many ways is emblematic of what happened during that period, you've made him relevant to us today, right? So he's a very, very relevant figure. Oh, I, I in terms I feel, of the I talk feel, about his relevance today, if you well, will. I think I, okay. I think the 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 first thing to talk about <clears throat> is Crane's method of writing, because we haven't really gone no, I was, to this yet, and I think it's very important, um, you know, to communicate this. What Crane did was uh, is that he got rid of the nineteenth century traditions of telling stories. But Crane, in all his books and stories and novellas, stripped out everything, all, all the incidental details, all the local color, to concentrate on the uh, most essential things in the story he was telling. Um, um, 
um, you know, H.G. Wells, who was a friend of uh, uh, Crane's also, he, he, he says, you know, Crane's work, and it's beautifully done, is, you know, the product of radical renunciations. And, and it's true, it's stripped down. Uh, so that, first of all, so you can, you can read the most famous of all his books, The Red Badge of Courage, which is a novel set during the Civil War, but the, the words Civil War are never mentioned. You don't right. even know who's fighting whom, and you don't even know what they're fighting about. Um, uh, we never hear North versus South. We never hear uh, the word slavery mentioned. We never hear the name Abraham Lincoln mentioned, nor the name of a single general from either side, uh, uh, either army. Um, it's really the story about the inner experience of a 16 or 17-year-old. Again, we don't even know how old he is. 16 or 17-year-old boy who's enlisted in the Union Army and uh, the fear that is running through him as he uh, prepares to, be, uh, to fight in his first battle and what happens to him during that battle and the consequences that, that follow. But it's all a tremendous mix of external details in that Crane had an eye. Crane had an eye like few writers ever. He could see things uh, so sharply. Uh, I think he, he almost had eyes in the back of his head. Uh, I, I don't know what it was. He was a kind of buzzing character, a uh, human being uh, maybe more alive than most of us ever are or, or ever will be. That's Crane stylistically. Um, and I think, too, um, there's a, a piece he wrote he went up to Sing Sing and wrote an wrote a article for uh, Pulitzer on the electric chair at, at, at Sing Sing. And I'll just add in parentheses, it's fascinating to know that Becker, that, that corrupt cop who arrested <laughs> Dora Clark, was the first policeman in American history to die in the electric chair. And he died Sing Sing. In, in that chair that Crane saw you know, 20 years before. Uh, and it was such a famous case that it's mentioned. Becker is mentioned in The Great Gatsby. Um, That's right. I mean, it's fascinating. Anyway, anyway. So while he's there up at the prison, he goes out of the building and he, and he visits the graveyard where all the dead convicts have been buried. And, um, but there's a house there overlooking the Hudson also. And he said, if you stand on the porch of this house, you know, you can, when you look out and you can see these wooden markers, um, you know, of the dead, of the dead prisoner, he said, you can just make out at the distance what you're seeing and just not make out. And he said, you encounter the, the dividing line between coherence and a blur. And I think a lot of Crane's work is in that on that line between coherence and a blur. Oh, it's almost beautiful. as if he discovered this territory, which is 20th century territory. This is this is, you know, modernism is in that on that line between coherence and a blur too. So stylistically, it's extraordinarily innovative, and um, uh, it opens a door, I think, onto what what will follow. 
about the meaning of Crane, and this is where he becomes truly, truly relevant and, and is modern in all its implications. He accepted the fact that we are living in a world without gods. The gods are dead. And, and, and therefore, there is no um, obvious meaning to human life. He, he, he understands that nature is not a hostile force, nor a benevolent force, simply an indifferent force. Nature has no interest in human beings whatsoever. Uh, we are alone in this cosmic space. And nevertheless, he's not a nihilist because he believes that how men act with one another matters and that morality comes out of uh, a, a kind of human solidarity and, and, and that when we are at war with each other, and it, it, life becomes hell. And, and in, this, in these two great stories, uh, The Open Boat, I think that was the, it was, which is about the consequent events after the shipwreck, when he was alone on a, in a 10-foot rowboat, a dinghy, with the captain and two other crew members. The four of them could not get in. They were, they were stranded actually outside of Daytona Beach, Florida. And right, right. They couldn't get in. They couldn't get in. The waves, right. the surf was so huge that they kept getting pushed out to, to sea. And they were out floating in that boat and rowing. And Crane was, and, and one of the other men were rowing the whole time. 30 hours, so that's, that's a long time. And through a long, dark night, it was January. So it's a dark, dark night. Sharks are swimming by, and um, it's it's an amazing story, and I think it changed Crane's life because it's based on his own experiences, and he understood that this, as he said, you know, they're 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 facing potential death, and one of them did die, um, but he said he calls himself the correspondent in this one. Right, the correspondent understood that this was the greatest experience of his life. And I think it's when Crane finally understood that he could be connected to other people in, in, a, in a deep, lasting way. So it's all very inspiring to me, and it doesn't get old because Crane's subjects are extreme situations, life and death, danger, war, poverty, and these are eternal subjects. They just don't change so that... It doesn't feel that you're you're reading something old. It's 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 forever new. Um, Paul, with all of with all of what he wrote, and since probably a lot of people are going to come to this and this event, and probably not really have experienced much of Crane's work, could you suggest where they might begin? Yes. Are there I, any? Are there I any? Would. I would, I, and I, I, would, I would say, I, I think there are six things to read. And if you read just one of them, that's great. But uh, any one of these six, if you read all six, I think you'll really have a, a good sense of who Crane was as a writer and what he stood for philosophically. Uh, I would begin with his first book, the novella, 
Maggie, A Girl of the Streets, which he published when he was 21 years old, self-published. Nobody would touch it. Um, he spent his entire inheritance uh, uh, publishing that book that nobody bought. Um, and then The Red Badge of Courage, because it is a classic, but it's deservedly a classic. And I think it's the uh, uh, certainly the greatest war novel ever written by an American. Uh, and then uh, The Monster, I, which I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, and then the two stories I've mentioned, too, The Open Boat and The Blue Hotel. And then, for a slightly different tonality, Crane in his humorous mode, but it's really a very deep story, too, The Bride Comes to Yellow Sky. Oh, yes. It's about 10 pages long. I love your description of that. It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful yeah. piece of work. Um, and um, and if I think if you read those, and then if you could uh, uh, pick up some of the poems from his first collection, The Black Riders, uh, you'd, you'd a leg up on Crane, and all of these things are short enough. You could read the whole bunch in two days. Easy. You know, can I ask you as a way of ending, and I know I'm springing this on you, on, on the very end of the book, before the notes, that last wonderful paragraph that you have where you kind of sum him up in a weird sort of way. He was no one, then he was someone. Would you read that? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. I, uh, uh, this is, this is uh, yeah, this is the end of the book. And I, I, I really didn't know how to, how to end. I, mean, <laughs> I thought I had said everything. So what I did was a kind of cavalcade of... Um, the, the places and the names of the people who who were important to him and um, um, and um, and then interspersed with with uh, quotations from from the work um, oh here here is that I, I quote that that passage from the uh, piece about sing sing if the people on this veranda ever lower their eyes from the wide river and gaze at these tombstones, they probably find that they can just make out the inscriptions at the distance and just can't make them out at, this, at the distance. They encounter the dividing line between coherence and a blur. And then I go into another list of, of friends, Singer, Wheeler, Lawrence, Linson, etc., and, you know, Hearst, Pulitzer, Dora Clark, Charles Becker, Theodore Roosevelt, and then another quote from the Blue Hotel. The poor gambler isn't even a noun. He's a kind of adverb. Every sin is the result of a collaboration. We five of us have collaborated in the murder of the Swede. Hmm. And then Lily Brandon Monroe, Nellie Krause, and Amy Leslie, all women he loved at one point or another. And then Cora, Cora, Haworth, Murphy, Stewart, Taylor, Crane, McNeil. And then another quote from one of his novels, a piece of dialogue. Yes, no, I don't know. Garland and Howells, James, Wells, and Conrad, they were all older than he was, and each man outlived him by many years. Sisyphus. He was no one, then he was someone, he was adored by many, despised by many, and then he disappeared. He was forgotten. 
he was remembered. He was forgotten again. He was remembered again. And now, as I write the last sentences of this book, in the early days of 2020, his books are being forgotten again. It is a dark time for America, a dark time everywhere. And with so much happening to erode our certainties about who we are and where we are going next, perhaps the moment has come to dig the, to dig the burning boy out of his grave and start remembering him again. The prose still crackles, the eye still cuts, the work still stings. Does any of this matter to us anymore? If it does, and one can only hope that it does, attention must be paid. Oh, Paul, thank you. It's always great to see you, my friend. It's wonderful to see you too, Mitch. And thank you, thank you for having me. It's always, always a delight to be with you. And uh, carry on your noble work, please. <laughs>